Hello, and welcome to Cutting Edge Issues podcast from the Department of International Development at the London School of Economics and Political Science. These podcasts are recordings from the Cutting Edge Issues in Development Thinking and Practice Lecture Series 2020 to 2021. That was a visiting lecture series coordinated by me, Duncan Green, Professor in Practice in the Department, with Professor of Development Studies, Professor James Putzel. The Cutting Edge Series provides students and guests with invaluable insights into the practical world of international development, with experts sharing their expertise and invite discussion on an exciting range of issues from responses to the COVID-19 pandemic to climate change policy to decolonizing academia. During the academic year 2020-21, we moved the series online, which meant we could host fantastic speakers from around the world and stream the series online, opening up the lectures to a global audience. I hope you enjoy the lecture. Okay, I would like to welcome everybody to the this this week's cutting edge um, issues in development thinking and practice. We are really delighted to have Branko Milanovic with us speaking from New York City. Branko is, he, I don't know if he would like me saying this, a Yugoslavian American. Um, and he's really had a career of doing path-breaking work on world inequality and poverty and the the historical and geographical reach of this work is absolutely impressive and of course it's extremely important to all of us who are interested in international development. Branko is visiting presidential professor at the Graduate Center at City University in New York and um, also senior scholar at the Stone Center He was lead economist in the World Bank Research uh, Department for quite a few years. And the list of his credentials is absolutely mind-blowing. I would take the rest of the evening if I were to go through it. I mean, I do want to mention that he shared in 2018, he shared the, um, uh, with Mariano Mazzucato, the Leontiev Prize for Advancing the Frontiers of Economic Knowledge, a very prestigious prize and one whose winners we love to invite to the LSE. He has his own relationships with the London School of Economics and uh, often on Ben Among Us. Um, Two of his books that really stand out in my mind are The the Haves and the Have-Nots and his fantastic work on global inequality. The breadth of that book is stunning. And it also... It also cautions us why it's so hard to predict the future. But he's going to be talking to us tonight about his latest book, Capitalism Alone, The Future of the System That Rules the World. So there's some future prediction here. Um, This book has uh, drawn lots of controversy has been welcomed right across the world. Um, it's making people in the World Bank and the, and the IMF uh, think, um, you know, I haven't, I've only, I've only recently got my hands on the book um, towards the end of it when he's talking about the problems of outsourcing morality and late capitalism. It makes me think of the present occupant of the White House. Uh, who is reluctant to leave. Um, But 
will be able to listen to what he says about political um, and liberal capitalism and what's on our horizon. And I hope you'll all um, uh, um, as well enjoy our discussant this evening who, who needs no introduction, Duncan Green, who'll be offering some comments directly after the talk. So without further ado, Branko Milanovic, welcome to the LSE. Well, James, thank you so much for this beautiful introduction. Uh, thank you for Duncan for also the invitation. And of course, uh, I have to say it's always a pleasure to be at LSE. Uh, it would have been uh, more pleasurable, I must say, to be there physically. And had it not been for this disaster that we are living through, actually, I would have been in London now because uh, my gig with, uh, with LSE, with the Institute for International Inequalities, actually would have started now. So I'm, um, of course, uh, regret that, like all of us, that we have come to this situation, but obviously this is the second best, you know, the second best. We are still uh, lucky to be able to communicate and to have discussions. So let me then first try to share the screen, which is always a little bit of a challenge. Uh, let's see if it is there. Uh, can you see it now? Yes. Okay, that's great. So let me just make it big. Okay, so I will speak at, uh, uh, you know, as James said, I would speak actually about my new book. It's, it's called Capitalism Alone. It was published uh, almost exactly a year ago. Uh, and um, it does actually, as the title says, it really has one big theme arguing that capitalism is the only mode of production in the world today. It's based simply on empirical observation. It's not something necessarily that I'm so happy about, nor I'm unhappy about. But the fact is that, of course, uh, after the end of socialism, we do not have an alternative mode of production. I will explain that in a minute, but just trust me for this minute. And then second theme in the book is the uh, rebalancing of the world, which is uh, essentially the uh, rise of Asia and the implications that it has both uh, politically, geopolitically, but also in terms of income distribution. As, as James said, actually before, uh, because most of my work was, is on global income inequality. And when you have such tremendous reshuffling of world incomes as we had now, then clearly, um, positions of different people in different uh, people from different countries are affected if you have, for example, lots of Asians moving into the top 20% of the world income distribution. In other words, those people who were there before will then have to go down. So that's obviously very traumatic. And I think partly it is that particular trauma that has led to many political events that we witness in the Western countries, certainly since the um, global financial crisis. So let me then give you a, a structure of the book and I'll tell you what I will be talking about. And also I would like to assure you that I'm not planning to sort of cover and to read the entire book and take, you know, the whole time. So I would speak for about uh, 40 minutes. Uh, then I would be really sort of given a sign that it's time to, to stop. 
and then Duncan will actually come with his comments and then we'll have time for Q&A, which I think is really important. And I have to say at LSC, I always learned a lot from Q&A, so I'm really happy to have it. Uh, the structure of the book is as follows. The first chapter, which is very small, it just gives the contours of the post-Cold War, post-Cold World, uh, uh, post-Cold War world, and um, uh, essentially presents these two themes of the book that, you know, capitalism is the only mode of production, and secondly, the rise of Asian countries. Uh, the second chapter is something that I will talk today. I call it liberal meritocratic capitalism. You know, for simplicity, I will talk mostly about the U.S. experience simply because the data are plentiful and because I also believe that uh, um, differences between the U.S. and other similar types of capitalism, whether it could be, you know, uh, European continental or it could be Nordic, are, I think, getting smaller than they used to be. Then, uh, then uh, some parts I will not talk except in the Q&A. Uh, political capitalism deals with essentially China. It has a first part, which I think is interesting for the students of sort of Marxist economy, of Marxist philosophy or economics. I do have a reinterpretation of the role of communism in global history, which I think is to some extent maybe the most ambitious part of the book. And that leads to the discussion of China. Uh, and then uh, chapter four, this interaction of capitalism and globalization on, in, in, on two fronts, if you will. One is uh, uh, labor, where actually mostly I deal with the question of migration. Secondly, capital, global value chains. You notice, you notice in both cases, it is really movements of the factors of production, which are made possible through globalization. Then I deal with the future of the welfare state under globalized and what I call hyper-commercialized capitalism. And then finally, I have a one section, which I think is interesting section, and that sort of essentially argues that under globalization, we really have um, an expansion of corruption. And I think there are some reasons why that expansion of corruption has happened with globalization. And finally, I, I, I conclude with also relatively short chapter with the future of global capitalism, but that chapter deals with our ordinary lives very often and uh, deals with what I call the, you know, outsourcing uh, of morality, where actually basically the law takes uh, place instead of some other moral rules or inhibitions uh, with the gig economy, with um, our uh, sort of... Uh, um, well, commodification of most of our activities, including leisure activities. So it's a very interesting chapter. I mean, I think people who might not care for the other chapters might wish to read that one because it really deals with their daily life in a, in a very commercialized um, uh, world or commodification where commodification is very advanced. So now let me uh, sort of, since we are now going to talk about chapter two, let me just uh, motivate it simply by, in very simple ways, by distinguishing between with, uh, what I call um, liberal meritocratic capitalism, and I will explain these two terms, from classical capitalism. I'm actually having several papers that I'm publishing right now with two different authors, but it really sort of, both of them relate to this particular uh, difference between classical capitalism and modern capitalism or liberal or meritocratic. Uh, 
In a classical capitalism of Marx and Ricardo, you essentially have uh, war, I mean, in Ricardo, obviously, uh, you have landlords, capitalists, and workers, and your position in the process of production or the ownership that you have, whether it is land or capital or labor force, determines really, in their view, determines your position in the income distribution. You see this graph actually very simply shows that income is on a horizontal axis, number of people on the vertical axis, but the point is the following. All capitalists are richer than all workers. In other words, it's very unlikely that you would find a worker who is richer than some capitalists. It's very unlikely they will find a capitalist who is then poorer than a worker. And moreover, what is of course very important is that capitalists tend to have only capital income Workers have only labor income. It's a simplification, but these authors work with that simplification because it seemed to them quite reasonable. And notice that in that case, as I said, you are actually, your position in production depend, uh, de determines type of income that you have, and that type of income that you have determines your position in the interpersonal income distribution. So, you know, different way to see this, I actually seem, you know, did the previous graph in this way. You basically say here have people on the horizontal axis ranked by total income. Or poor, I mean, laborers are always, I mean, relatively poor, but they are better off laborers. So this is the red line. So gradually their income level is increasing, but they are still, the last laborer is still poorer than the guys with a you know with blue uh, line, which are capital capitalists or people with capital income, and I drove the capital income in an exponential way just to indicate that we might have a different distribution of capital income that it may follow you know either Pareto distribution or exponential distribution. But the point is that very seldom would you have capital owners doubling up as laborers. So it is really a very segmented society with two or actually with, with the landlords, three groups with very determined incomes that they have and type of uh, factorial incomes that they receive. Now, what is, why is meritocratic capitalism or liberal, and I'll define the terms now, different? Uh, the terms go as follows. Meritocratic uh, term comes from uh, uh, John Rawls. He calls it meritocratic equality. Meritocratic in this terminology has nothing to do with this popular terminology of meritocratic being sort of deserving or something. He defines meritocratic as simply allowing you to get to any job or position uh, without legal impediment. In other words, it's different from having a caste society, it's different from having a slavery or serfdom or uh, like uh, three states. Uh, uh, three estates, rather, tiers d'état, as they, you had it before the French Revolution, where simply you could not accede to some positions because you were born in an inferior uh, social class. Uh, so meritocratic really means very little from today's perspective. It means that everybody is in principle equal uh, before the law. So just to make sure that when I say meritocratic, I don't mean anything else than that. In uh, his terminology, liberal means two things, and that's quite important. The liberal uh, is, supposed, is supposed to uh, break the connection between the wealth and um, uh, advantages that parents have 
and transmission of that advantage to the offspring. And that's why uh, roles actually has two important uh, uh, elements which break that connection because he's of course interested in having equal opportunity across the board. Elements are free schooling and the role of public education and uh, taxation of inheritance. As you will see at the end of the presentation, if we ever get there, uh, this is actually something that I very much advocate as well. And for the same reason that Rawls did, which are really the reasons of breaking the ability to transmit the advantages to the children and then to create something which might start looking like an aristocracy after a few uh, generations. So how does income in meritocratic capitalism look? So you see here it is labor income. I do it the same as I did before. But now what happens with the capital income? So this is tech, which is really empirically how capital income is distributed in our societies. I'm using Luxembourg income study data. 30% of people have zero capital income. So these are poor people. They actually have either negative capital, negative assets. So negative capital income. But then you have people who gradually have a little bit and then more and more capital income. And then at some point, as you can see, this blue line intersects the red line and actually they have even more capital income than labor income. So that was how it sort of works out in, a, in our societies that when you come towards the top of the income distribution, probably towards the 5% of the richest, you actually have there people who have more capital income than labor income. So what is the sort of a story that you tell here? The story is that your capital income is increasing or the share of total income that you receive from capital is increasing in your overall income position. In other words, if you are at the median income level, you would have a little bit of capital and much more labor. But if you are in the top 5%, the share of income that you would receive from capital would be much greater than the share of income that you would receive from labor. Now, why is this important? It is important because in a society that we have now, and actually it has been documented for the last 30 years, and of course Piketty makes that a big part of his story, with the rising of capital income in total, due to automation, technological change, robotics or whatever, weakening trade unions, you would have a larger chunk of total pie, of total GDP appropriated by people who have capital. Now, the problem is that, that, that with this particular structure where capital income is much more important among the people who are rich, you have an, a, a quasi-automatic transmission from rising share of capital in national income or in GDP and rising interpersonal inequality. So I will be very happy if you were to ask me and, and quiz me on that point, because this is the one of the crucial points, how the functional income distribution that moves in favor of capital will have an impact of interpersonal income inequality, which means income distribution between individuals. Because if we had something which I called in the book, people's capitalism, which would be also very unequal, but it would not have the feature that I just mentioned because labor and capital income would be present in the same percentages across board. So let's suppose I'm a rich guy and I have 
1,000 uh, you know, pounds of capital and also 1,000 pounds of labor. And you are poor and you have 100 in labor and 100 in capital. And suddenly, you know, capital becomes much more prevalent. The share of capital in total output goes up. Well, what would happen? We all get 10% increase from, in capital. And I have now 1,100 and you have 110. But notice the, the ratios do not change. So in other words, when this happens, if, if our shares of, that we get from capital versus labor are the same, interpersonal inequality doesn't go up. Now, that does not mean that interpersonal inequality must necessarily be low. But what it means is that interpersonal inequality is not going to go on account of the rising share of capital. And that's very important if you believe that rising share of capital is somehow, you know, not only been the present in the last 30 years, but it's around the corner because of all these elements that I just mentioned. So in that people's capitalism, we all, where we all have approximately similar shares of capital and labor in our income, we would not have this automatic transmission in income, uh, uh, in income inequality, in personal, interpersonal income inequality. So after this introduction, which I think is important to actually put these different capitalisms in order, I have a, yet another one, a small one towards the end of the book, which I call the egalitarian capitalism, where actually you could imagine that we have this, not only the same composition of capital and labor, but that we all have approximately the same amounts in terms of skill and in terms of the ownership of capital. Well, then in that case, both our shares would be the same and the amounts would be very similar. So in that case, obviously, you would have interpersonal inequality that would be very, very low. And obviously, in that case, whether the capital share goes up or not is irrelevant. And I think that we have to make a little bit of a mental exercise there because historically, you know, that goes back for centuries. We have gotten used to thinking that if you have large part of your income coming from capital, you must be rich. But, you know, it is not something that cannot be changed. You know, it is, it, it could also, technically, it could happen that actually people with lots of capital become poor. You know, if capital, for example, pays very little return and labor becomes dominant and the, the returns from labor or wages overwhelm like uh, uh, the, the dividends or interest that we have received from capital, we could actually have a total reversal. Um, I'm not saying it's like going to happen. I just want to say that people should have the mental exercise to, to see what actually what we are observing is something which is historically determined and it's not something which is sort of necessarily uh, going to remain like that. Now, let me go through six, six systemic inequalities in this liberal slash meritocratic capitalism. Some of them I'll go very quickly because I already mentioned, some of them you already know, but some of them are new. So the number one is the increasing aggregate share of capital in national income. So I'm not going to read them all here because they would come in a minute, each of them individually, and I want to save the time. So let's start with that number one, just to show you uh, from one of the slides, and I could have actually had many, that this is based on the G7 countries uh, from a, a paper by Matthew Rogley, uh, basically showing the share, capital share going up in, uh, since probably 1980s in major economies. 
Now there is a new IMF paper about a year ago. Uh, the authors look at something like 30 countries, including China, Chile, and others. And you know, interestingly, they find really practically in all countries increasing capital share. This is something which is really a new uh, to a large extent, because we believed with little evidence, but we believed that so-called Bolis law would hold in the sense that essentially 70% or thereabouts of total national income would belong to labor and 30% would belong to capital. And as you know, the equivalent to that is to have a Cobb-Douglas production function where actually the shares are fixed. But that actually did not work out like that in the last uh, 30 years. So this rising capital share then produces what I was saying minutes ago, increasing uh, inequality uh, between individuals, so-called interpersonal inequality, Gini goes up. And why does the Gini go up? Is because the source, which is more unequally distributed, namely capital income, becomes more important. So look here, I've got four countries here. I could really literally bring you like 25 you know, advanced countries because this is all based on Luxembourg income data and we now really have a major expansion of service. Many of them, I would actually suggest that you look up the Luxembourg income survey data. Uh, even a Paris School Economics that actually uses the top, you know, for 90% of the population, they use uh, house school survey data. So they're the largest users of the Luxembourg income study. So here, what it shows in blue is for the US, UK, Norway, Germany, it shows you the Gini coefficient of capital and in red, the Gini coefficient of labor. Now, notice that in many countries, UK in particular, this red, uh, these red dots go up in time. In other words, labor becomes more unequally distributed. So actually the widening of the labor distribution. This has been studied quite a lot. So this is not something terribly new. You see the same thing for the uh, US and actually since we are really having small slides here, this is, uh, and Gini is a sluggish measure. Uh, the, 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 of course the increases have even been more significant than what you might see on, on the graph. So basically labor has become more unequal. But the main problem is that the source that is actually increasing in its share, which is capital here in blue, is way more unequally distributed than labor. And it, it is mostly received by people who are already rich. So look at, for example, the genius of capital in all these countries, they're at, at the lowest 0.85 and they go all the way to 0.95. So it's a no brainer if you have an increasing share of a source that is more unequally distributed, you are actually going to have an overall increase in inequality. So this, this is exactly what the problem is. And this is why interpersonal inequality can be expected to uh, keep on rising so long as the capital share goes up. And as I said before, the capital share goes, can go up because of the weakening trade unions are actually then getting a smaller share of the pie of you know, lower minimum wage. Uh, it could go up because of automation where actually you release um, workers. It could go up because of technological change. You know, these are all issues, particularly these issues on technological change and replacement of workers are something which uh, 
since I was teaching that last semester, when you can really lead with, read with quite, uh, um, how should I say, with quite interesting insight, Marx in volume three of, of uh, Capital, where he actually really talks about that, what he calls the increase in the organic composition of capital and how essentially workers are being sort of replaced and how that of course improves the profitability of each individual capitalist enterprise, but drives down the overall rate of profit because obviously you would have more um, sort of machinery and fewer workers. You know, it, that leads also the issue which is interesting from, from Marx's perspective, what happens if you have entirely mechanized production? So then you don't have labor. And so anyway, so these are the, the issues I think we, we actually face now in real life. This is simply the same story. I will go very briefly over that. This is actually for a bunch of countries. You see that the genie of capital income is very high for all of them. Taiwan is a country which actually has relatively low um, uh, genie of capital income. Actually, it has lower genie. I don't have China on this graph, but it has lower genie than China. It has overall lower genie than China and has lower genie of um, capital income than China. And then you have countries like Chile highlighted over there with very high uh, level of capital, um, uh, of the Gini coefficient of capital income. In other words, these are really the countries where capital is very, very heavily concentrated. So let me then move to the sec I mean, next uh, systemic force, which pushes um, inequality in capitalism, in liberal capitalism up. This is a graph that comes from Ed Wolf, not always the clearest graph, but the idea here is, I think this, this I mean, I mean, clear is, is the idea is the following. You have tech, I mean, you have uh, in a standard way, you have about 30% of the population with zero net wealth. Then from the 30th percentile to about 95th percentile, most of the assets that people have are in their housing. All other assets like furniture and cars and so on are really small. And then you come to the top 5% and obviously even more so the top 1% where the most of their assets are held in financial form. So that could be obviously equity and that would be private equity. There would be other forms of you know, financial instruments. It could be obviously bonds and whatever else. And um, that actually is shown in this particular thing, which I highlighted, where you see that basically that the, the top 1% holds something like 80% of their wealth in securities and other, uh, in other types of business equity. So uh, what then happens? Uh, the question becomes, if uh, financial assets increase faster in price compared to housing, then you actually really create an additional element that pushes inequality up because the top guys are actually growing faster. Their assets are going faster and the income from those assets is going faster. If housing and uh, uh, financial assets grow about the same rate, then that does not change. Obviously, the relationship between them doesn't change. Obviously, those people who are the 30%, they gain nothing because they start with having zero assets. So it is this compositional effect that Ed Wolf says has historically in the last 50 years gone in favor of the owners of financial assets more than in favor of the 
people who own mostly housing. So that was really an additional element to push inequality up. And so this is, for example, just to give you an idea how highly concentrated are stocks and mutual funds, whether directly or indirectly owned. So basically the 10% of the wealth owners in the United States own more than 90% of stocks and mutual funds or uh, uh, and or stocks directly and indirectly owned. So without mutual funds are about 85%. In other words, I mean, if you want to simplify, you can say that in the United States, uh, the, the, all the financial assets are owned by 10% of people. So basically the US, when it comes to the financial assets, it's owned by one tenth of its population. So just to, to simplify, and you would not be very wrong, actually you may be even underestimating something, somewhat the, their ownership. But there is an additional element, which I have been, we have been sort of become aware of that recently. And that's that for the same uh, asset that, uh, and let's take financial assets, it turns out that richer people have higher returns. And that's very important. I cannot emphasize how important it is because what it means that if I come up with $1,000 and invest that, I will get, let's suppose, 1% return over a year. But if somebody comes with 1 million, he or she would get 10% return. Uh, you might remember in, um, in uh, capital in the 21st century, when um, uh, we didn't have that information, Piketty was able, and that was actually very, very smart what he did, he was able to get information, which was very closely held, by the way, by, from the U.S. colleges, uh, which have huge endowments, of the rates of return to these endowments. And what was very clear in that small, uh, small table is that the higher your endowment, the greater was the rate of return that you got it. So what that implies is that actually uh, richer people become ever richer because their day of return that they can actually get on their assets is higher. Or actually the rate of return increases in the amount of assets. Uh, this is a very, I think, very important development and that has been sort of thought before, except that we didn't have empirical evidence like the one that is from Eric Zwick here, uh, that uh, you could not, you had many uh, barriers to entry. In other words, if you come up to a, you know, fidelity and say, I've, I, or, in, you know, any other investment fund and say you've got like a thousand dollars or thousand pounds, they would actually put you anywhere, you know, they would say, okay, go to the internet and invest and find it. You would whatever you want to do. But if you come with a million, then you would have an advisor. That person would be actually paid a certain percentage of the returns. He would have a direct incentive to improve the returns. So essentially, you would have really the advantages of somebody who knows or who would actually follow what is happening. It's a little bit like we are talking now about unfortunate uh, COVID. It's a little bit like you show up in a hospital and you're just treated like one among like a millions, or you show up in a hospital and you have your own doctor. So it's a little bit like that when it comes to the investment. Either you go there and nobody's helping you, or you go there and you get the best advice. And they are going to give the best advice only to people who obviously have high 
wealth to invest so that actually they themselves also get significant amount of money. But that element, I think, is quite important. It's under-research, and I would always suggest to the young people, because it's an under-research uh, element, to, to start really looking at that, because it's really something that, that um, we have very little information about. My third uh, factor here is some, what, something that I actually first time sort of defined in the book. And again, now I'm working on two papers on this particular topic. It's something that I called homoplutia. Now, Homoplutia, of course, is two, two Greek words. As whenever you have a new term, you have to just look up in the Wikipedia how to put it up in a, in, in, a, in a Greek, right? So homo means the same, plutia is the wealth. So essentially what it means is that the same people are wealthy or you know rich, if you will, in terms of capital and labor income. This is an entirely new development. And then think of what I, when I talked about um, uh, classical capitalism, there you said people who were wealthy, like capitalists, they were wealthy in terms of capital. You had also some workers who might have been reasonably well off in terms of labor, but you did not have this situation that somebody who is wealthy in the space of capital is also wealthy in the space of labor. This is really something new. And uh, you look at US micro data here, you notice that from 1980 to 2016, the percentage of people who are in the top decile by capital income and in the top decile by labor income has grown from 15% to 30%. So it's actually a doubling of the people who were actually both capital and labor rich. And this is a development that we now are actually looking in a number of other countries and it has certain features which are really unique in the sense that they that um, it might make uh, uh, taxation of such individuals more difficult because they have two large two sources of income and it would also can make inequality in combination with the two other things that I'll come in a minute much more severe and also much more difficult to deal with. Now, here is actually the same homoplutia for different countries. And notice, of course, there are some of them that actually even have higher percentage, like Italy and the Netherlands, approaching 30% of the people who are top capitalists being also top uh, earners of labor income. And then you have countries of classical capitalism, Mexico and Brazil, where you have that ratio, that percentage being only 8%. Now, mind you, what would happen in a total classical capitalism? You would have that percentage zero. You know, it, whoever is in the top 10% by capital income is very unlikely to be in the top 10% by labor income. Simply, they, they would not work. They would not have a labor income. And whoever has the top labor income is unlikely to have lots of capital income. But what then would happen if this evolution continues, and we end up with a number of 100%. Then we are really creating a very interesting top class. We are having people there who are all the richest capitalists and the richest workers. And this is something which obviously has never been seen in history. But as I said, we are moving towards that. I mean, we are now at 30%. Maybe it will never reach 100%, but we might be moving toward maybe 40 or 50 or any such number. That is then combined with a topic which has been studied, 
uh, homogamy or assortative mating, which also adds to inequality. Now, I've studied it a little bit differently, just to show you very briefly the two pictures about the share of uh, men, male, top decile by uh, labor earning, and their likelihood of marrying uh, women from the top labor earning versus the women from the bottom labor earning. So what this graph shows you in 1970, that's the horizontal axis, the vertical axis is the percentage of young men who are the age 20 to 35 and who are in the top decile by labor earnings. And then you say, okay, how many of them are marrying also women who are of the same age and who are in the top earning of female decile? And how many are marrying women also of the same age, but who are at the bottom decile in terms of the earnings? Now, the red, the orange color is the women whom they marry who are rich, and the blue is the women who are married, whom men marry and who are poor. Now, as you can notice, the difference is almost non-existent. So it's actually, if I was a young man of 1970 and in the top decile by earning, I would have about the same chance of marrying a, a rich woman uh, in terms of uh, you know, her earnings and the uh, poor one at the bottom of, of the female earnings. Well, you notice what has happened over the next uh, 40 years, uh, actually almost 50 years, is that every time that the cohort of, of, you know, same cohort, but of course, obviously these are new people, you know, uh, it has actually increased the likelihood of marrying somebody who is like you. In other words, marrying somebody who is also in the top female decile. So much so that the ratio, as you can see now, is about three to one and was one to one. The same story is true for women. The graph is almost the same. It's even more dramatic because the ratio in the case of women has gone up from one to one to almost five to, yeah, actually five to one. So what does it mean when you put it together with homogamy? So what it means is that, and I think that's something which really I emphasize in the book and may not emphasize actually sufficiently, is that when we look at inequality, we look at inequality in a, a sort of a, um, in a sort of a static sense. We actually look who is rich and who is poor and how the things have changed. But what we need to actually uh, look is dynamic sense, in other words, ability to transfer, convert that inequality or these advantages that the families enjoy into the future generations. And that happens if you have a family which has high capital income, high labor income, which has both members, both partners having high education or high incomes. And such partners, as we know, invest very heavily in time that they spend with the children and moreover, invest very heavily in education of the children. So then what happens is that you really are able to, you know, uh, do uh, sort of basically reproduce these advantages because your children received inheritance or, you know, financial assets. They receive uh, a huge investment that you as parents make. They receive a monetary investments that parents make into schooling and they receive 
social capital, which comes from interactions or connections that they also enjoy. So then it's really, you're really moving toward the creation of something which might look like a uh, sort of a, a self-sustaining upper class. And just to illustrate that, uh, what you also need, you need the control of the political process so that these advantages are not uh, dissipated because political uh, decisions should be made in your favor. And this is, of course, from the work of Martin Gillens. There are several books on that now. And you, I'm not going to explain the graph, but basically upward sloping graph uh, means that the richer you are, the more likely are the issues that are of your concern to be debated or taken into account or voted uh, by the representative uh, you know, bodies, whether parliaments or in the US by Congress and so on. So in other words, this is really tying in the, 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 the advantage in, in the sense that you now have also a political power to uh, transmit that advantage. And of course, what then uh, happens is that, uh, uh, oh, this is, I'm sorry, from the assortative matings a different way. So I will just skip that. So what this essentially then matters <coughs> happens is that dynamical, in a dynamic sense, you actually end up with uh, with the creation of, uh, or a potential of a creation of a new aristocracy where that new upper class is being very strongly maintained. And I think I have actually exhausted my time, but the last point that I simply want to mention when I talk, I will talk about what should be done you know, for the um, education and for, for, uh, 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 for uh, deconcentration de of capital assets. But let me show you this of course striking uh, slide from the US is that actually the college, college attendance rates by parent uh, income percentile were actually, as you notice, it's basically a straight line. So in other words, the, the, the college and the exorbitant cost of the college, which in the US runs in more than $50,000, I argue have really become a sort of a, um, monopoly of the rich and the high cost of college I think is in the interest of the rich because what it does it eliminates for their children from all those who actually if the college were free or much cheaper who would be able to compete if you put a college cost let's suppose you know three hundred thousand dollars a year you would actually even uh, win out even more people so it's only those the children of those who can pay $300,000 that would actually be able to compete, which is a phenomenal way to actually get rid of all the others. And then you essentially have the sort of reinforcement of that power that you have already conveyed to your children through you know, inheritance and other you know, things. And that of course leads to what uh, Miles Korak and all others have you know, discussed. And of course, Chetty have discussed and found that there was a reduction in, in, um, in intergenerational uh, mobility in a number of countries, including the United States. So when it comes to the recommendations, I'll just be very quick here because I'm sure that some people will ask questions and they are of two kinds. One is about the public education and the importance of public education being better and replacing to a large extent uh, private education, but I emphasize better because you need to be better in order that the best 
students go to the best, to such best schools, and then act, that actually then they get the the jobs that they pay the most. And when it comes to capital, I am arguing in favor of more widely owned capital, because if you have more widely owned capital, then capital will not be concentrated in the hands of the very few, as we have seen before, and you will be actually able to break that link which exists between. Um, rising capital share and rising interpersonal inequality. So these two recommendations have the two objectives. One, break the link between the rising capital share and quasi-automatic increase in interpersonal inequality. Secondly, break the link between family wealth and ability of family to use that wealth through the educational process and to maintain the advantage for their children. So in these two things that you can see are very similar to what um, Rawls originally said. It is really uh, limiting the ability of uh, to transfer the advantages across generations and to make sure that we have much greater uh, equality of opportunity. So let's stop here. Uh, I'm, I've gone, I think, a little bit over time, but um, it's, I guess, still somewhat reasonable. Oh, very, Thank you very much. Very nice, uh, Branko. Thank you very much um, for that. And I'm sure there's going to be lots of questions, actually. But before that, um, I would like to bring on Duncan Green, our professor of practice at the, um, at the ID department here at the LSE, and uh, for a short uh, discussion's comment of this. Duncan. Right. Thanks, James. And thanks. Huge thanks, Branko. Um, I'd better admit right at the beginning that I'm a, a serious fanboy. I've been following his work for decades. Um, when I first came across him, he was a kind of lone voice on inequality somewhere in the bowels of the World Bank uh, when no one was talking about it. Um, he was sort of developing a lot of the work that many others have drawn on since. He came up with a, the quintessential killer graph, the elephant graph of who's got the benefits since 1980. He's, he's a wonderful writer, quirky writer. You know, he tries to, he goes back to Jane Austen to try and work out the distribution of income in early 19th century England, tries to estimate inequality in ancient Rome. He has fun as well as crunching data and having this big historical sweep. So he's, he, he is a true, and I think European, I'm gonna claim him for Europe, a true European intellectual of the, of the top rank. Um, Coming to the book, Capitalism Alone, I think it's, it's, it's a fascinating exploration within different kinds of capitalism, um, you know, liberal, social democratic, political capitalism, um, many other kinds he's been talking about today. Um, and he helped, that helps explain things where others struggle, the transformation of China, how, you know, the, the most people in the West who write about China see it as a kind of annoying country that keeps growing and it should be a blip and it should collapse and why doesn't it you know Asamoglu and Robinson and people like that really struggle with China and I think Branko has a makes a decent effort to try and understand the nature of Chinese capitalism but there's there's always a but and I've got a few buts so I think there's some significant gaps and Branko and I have talked about this first big gap is on the environment um, the book talks about the environment in a very 1970s way. It talks about why you know, the, the resources aren't running out, which was a big debate in the 1970s. Is the oil going to run out? But things have shifted, and we now 
are worried about the planet filling up and bursting the 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 the, the reaching the planetary boundaries of what is environmentally possible. So if you're thinking about the environment now, you're trying to move from an open system to a closed system, a system which has boundary conditions and asking yourself what kind of economics works within planetary boundaries as Kay Rayworth will be coming uh, next term uh, does. Branko, I think is still in that open system thinking. Um, and I think that's a, a problem for when you're going looking towards the future. And I think the second gap is on, you know, the, the classic structure of a book is an, an analysis of what is and the problems of what is, and then some suggestions for how to fix the problems that are identified. And I think his, so what's his how to fix it section is, is pragmatic, but a bit thin. You know, he, he's basically saying redistributive taxation, big investments in public schools, limited and temporary migration, sort out political campaign funding. These are all difficult, thorny, important political issues, but they don't really live up to the scale of the challenges he's describing in the book. Something else I talked to him about, which I think is really interesting, is is he an optimist or is he a pessimist? And I asked him this on a podcast we did last, last year, and his answer was really interesting. He thinks it's absolutely fair to describe him as a, a, a technological optimist and a political pessimist. He said, I'm pessimistic about political developments and our own ability to withstand the social pressure and the value system that underlines capitalism. I'm very pessimistic that we as individuals can buck that trend. Okay, so that's honest. It's painful, but I wanted to talk about the implications for activists. You know, as, as James mentioned, I'm supposed to be a professor of practice, and my practice is working for Oxfam, an activist organization that you know, uses a huge amount of Branko's work to try and argue about what to do about inequality. And I think as an activist, I find his conclusions quite disturbing. If you, if you believe his work and I, you know, and if you buy his work, which I, I tend to do, um, you really are in that, that Gramsci territory where you have to balance pessimism of the intellect with optimism of the will. But if you add to that, the question of planetary boundaries, pessimism of the intellect isn't really good enough because there doesn't appear to be an out from that situation unless something, this incredibly difficult transformation of the way the world is managed and run um, is, is achieved. But the, the, I think the problem which Branko really identifies is that no one has that in, in place. And we really need to spend a lot of time understanding the world as it is and all those different kinds of capitalism. So I think he's left, he leaves me confused and um, floundering about and frustrated. And I think that's a very healthy place to be. Um, I hope that his next book or some future book will take on that issue of, uh, of planetary boundaries and environmental limits and try and help us all work through what kind of transformation is possible within the, the, the reality of the political economy he describes. Uh, and I'll stop there because I'm sure there are lots of Q and A's. Thank you, Duncan. Thank you very much for that. Thanks for tuning in to this lecture recording from the Cutting Edge Issues in Development, Thinking and Practice series from 2020 to 2021. To hear more, don't forget to subscribe to our channel on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also watch any of these lectures back on our YouTube channel. Just search for International Development LSE.
And you can stay informed about upcoming events, including the next series of Cutting Edge Issues lectures, by searching for events on the LSE Department of International Development website or find us on Twitter at LSE underscore ID for the latest updates.